I never planned in my imagination a situation so heavenly. A fairyland where no one else could enter. In the center, just you and me. My heart beat like a hammer. My arms wound around you tight. And stars fell on Alabama last night. Stars Fell on Alabama is a beautiful song written in 1934 by Mitchell Parrish and Frank Perkins and first recorded by the Guy Lombardo Orchestra. The song took its inspiration from a book of the same name, written by Carl Carmer earlier that year. The book is an autobiographical account of the time Carmer spent living in and traveling through the heart of Dixie. The title of the song and the book refer to a particularly clear night in November of 1833, when the Leonid meteor shower was raining down 30,000 meteors an hour. It was so bright and intense that many who saw it thought the end of the world was at hand. The book became a bestseller and a selection of the Literary Guild. The song has been recorded by over a hundred artists, from Louis Armstrong to Frank Sinatra to Jimmy Buffett. How could anyone have known, though, that 20 years after both the book and the song debuted, the stars would actually fall on Alabama? November 30th, 1954, started like any other day for the Hodges in their small rental home in Sylacauga, Alabama. Anne cooked breakfast for her husband, Hewlett, before kissing him goodbye and sending him off to work. Hewlett was a tree trimmer, so Anne reminded him to be careful, as she did every morning. As he drove off, she went about her morning chores. She washed the dishes, made the bed, and did some dusting around the house. Around noon, she started to get a headache, but she laid out lunch for her mother who had come by for a visit. After lunch, Anne's head was still bothering her, so she lay down on the couch to rest for a while, and her mother helped by tidying up the kitchen. It was about 12.45 when it happened. Anne later wrote, quote, Suddenly, the whole house filled up with the awesome sound of one terrible crash. I can't describe that sound. It was like someone bombing Silicaga. Like the whole house had exploded. End quote. No doubt terrified by the awful sound which had happened first, she tried to jump up from the couch she had been napping on. It was then that she felt the pain in her hand and in her thigh. A split second later, she heard another loud noise as the cantaloupe-sized object, which had ripped through her roof and smashed into her seconds earlier, rolled off of the couch and onto the floor. They didn't know what it was or what had happened, so they called the police and the fire service to their house. You have to remember that this was at the peak of the Cold War, and people were pretty scared of things dropping out of the sky. The EMTs looked at her swollen hand and the football-sized bruise on her leg, and no doubt told her it could have been worse had the object hit her directly. Instead of bouncing off the old box radio, it had hit first when it came through the roof. The police thought the object was a meteorite and called in a local government geologist named George Swindle to confirm their theory. 
He told them it was definitely a meteorite, but regardless, the police were required by law to report any object that fell from the sky to the Air Force. The Air Force came in a helicopter and took the meteorite to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. From there, it was flown to my hometown of Washington, D.C. for further analysis. The meteorite measured about 8 inches in diameter and weighed about 8.5 pounds. People much smarter than I am dated the rock to about 4.5 billion years old, or roughly the same age as our planet. That's pretty awesome to consider. Meanwhile, back in Alabama, quite a crowd had gathered at the Hodges house. Neighbors had seen the object streaking across the sky, giving off, quote, a bright reddish light like a Roman candle. Many thought it was a plane going down and had waited for the explosion. Some thought it was the Soviets. Some believed it was aliens. They all came to gawk at the hole the meteorite had smashed through the roof and to hear Anne tell the story of how it had hit her. They wanted to see her bruise. Anne would get her 15 minutes of fame and even be featured on the cover of Life magazine two weeks later in a story titled, A Big Bruiser from the Sky. She was, after all, the only person in recorded history ever hit by a meteorite. But what was to become of that meteorite? Anne wanted it back, saying that God had obviously wanted her to have it. Her landlord, Bertie Guy, thought otherwise, stating that since she owned the house, the meteorite was obviously hers. Offers were pouring in for the rock, some as high as $5,000, a big sum in 1954. A lawsuit ensued as the two parties squabbled for possession. The law seemed to favor Bertie Guy's claim, but public opinion thought that it had to go to Anne. The lawsuit was eventually settled, with the Hodges buying out Bertie's claim for $500. Meanwhile, the meteorite had passed from the Air Force to the Smithsonian for further analysis. By the time it got back into Anne and Hewitt's hands, two years had passed, as had their 15 minutes of fame. When they tried to sell it, there was little interest. It was simply old news at that point. They used it as a doorstop for a while, reminding me of the story of Conrad Reed and his 17-pound solid gold doorstop we heard about in episode 5 of this podcast. They eventually sold it for a very modest sum to the Alabama Museum of Natural History in Tuscaloosa. It's still there today, along with the radio it smashed into. While the Hodges didn't make their fortune off of this meteorite, their neighbor, Julius McKinney, sure did. Julius found a smaller chunk of the meteorite, which weighed about three and a quarter pounds, while he was out plowing his fields. Striking while the iron was hot, so to speak, he sold it to a lawyer, who then donated it to the Smithsonian's Natural History Museum in Washington, D.C. It's there now. I've seen it. Of course, you already knew that, didn't you? Julius didn't make a million off of it, but enough to buy a new house and a new car, so I'd say he did all right. The incident in Sylacauga that November inspired a chapter in Alabama native author Fanny Flagg's most famous book, Fried Green Tomatoes, in which a meteorite crashes into their house. 
This didn't make it into the film version, though. And as a funny side note, I think it's great that right across the street from the Hodges house was a drive-in movie theater called The Comet. In an oft-quoted statement by Florida State College astronomer Michael Reynolds, you have a better chance of getting hit by a tornado and a bolt of lightning and a hurricane all at the same time than being hit by a meteorite. But such was the luck, or lack thereof, of Ann Hodges of Sylacauga on November 30th, 1954, the day the stars fell on Alabama. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every time. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the season finale of American Anthology. This is your host, Mike Harding, and it is a pleasure to be back with you today. When I set off on this journey 25 months and many miles ago, my goal was to capture a slice of America in our time. I wanted to visit each state, one at a time, and learn as much as I could about them in isolation. How did they come to be? What makes them unique and individual? What are things that only people from there would understand? In the time since, I've spent more than a month in each of the 10 states we've gone to together on this podcast. Each has been amazing in its own right. Each has influenced me and inspired me and surprised me. I've seen the beautiful, the magic, and the tragic, and come out a better person on the other side. Looking back over the last two years makes me smile. When I think of American food now, I think of hoop cheese, burgoo, etouffee, conch fritters, and hatteras chowder. When I think of the music, it's Piedmont blues, Appalachian mountain music, Zydeco and Cajun country, and sweet bluegrass in the hollers of Kentucky. I've skied in the mountains, hiked to spectacular waterfalls and mountaintops, and sat on beaches on the Atlantic, the Gulf of Mexico, the Mississippi River, and the Great Lakes. When it comes to this podcast, I wanted to find 10 stories and two musicians per state to give you some idea of what that place is all about, at least in my eyes. I've looked for stories that inspire, bring hope, make you think, and hopefully make you smile. They haven't all been happy stories, though, as I'm sure my loyal listeners can attest to. But history isn't always pretty, and each state has some things to own up to. Often, I tell these stories because I fear too many people have either forgotten them or never learned them in the first place. And I see us, as a country, repeating all too often mistakes we should have learned from the first time around. Through it all, it's been a fascinating process. I've certainly learned a lot, and I hope you have too. It's been a lot more work than I imagined though, and each episode takes many hours to put together, especially with just me out here. There are also challenges while trying to produce this from the road, mostly in trying to find quiet places to record. I've recorded episodes in my mom's attic, my dad's basement, my friend's kitchen, in closets, auditoriums, public library study rooms, and in a pinch in the back of my van. And inevitably, 
when I find a decent place, it will be the day that I'm congested or hoarse, but I have to push through anyway. Producing this podcast has been quite an experience, but it's been great, and I'm incredibly proud of the 21 episodes I've done. The best part of the process has been the collaborations I've done with the guest musicians I've had on the show. I love local music and try and see some wherever I am. Some of my guests have been on their way up, some are holding steady, and others have been sadly nearing the end of their journey. All of them have been awesome though, and I'm proud to have been able to present their hard work to a wider audience. Today is no exception. And today I'm thrilled to have not one, but two musical guests as a special treat for the season finale. First up is the lovely and talented Hannah McFarland. I met Hannah when she was doing a set at my friend Jim Pennington's venue, the People's Room of Mobile. I was truly blown away by this young lady's voice, talent, and songwriting ability. And I'm so excited to feature her music on the show today. While you can find all of the songs I'll play for you today on iTunes, I also know she'll be releasing a new album soon, so keep your eyes peeled for that, too. You can find out more about Hannah on her website, hannahmcfarlandmusic.com. You can also find her on Facebook at Hannah McFarland Music and on Instagram at Hannah McFarland. She is one of Alabama's best up-and-coming stars, and I know we'll see a lot more from her in years to come. I met my second guest for today's show at the awesome Third Street Songwriters Festival in Baton Rouge last year. Tommy Ikehaley is a phenomenal Louisiana-based singer-songwriter and an amazing storyteller and historian as well. When I was writing one of the stories I'll tell you today, I couldn't help but think of my favorite song that Tommy sings, written straight from his own family history. I was super excited that he agreed to do a special recording of the song just for this podcast, and I know you'll see why I thought it fits so well. Because he recorded it just for you, I'm going to play it in its entirety, as it has its own story to tell. You can find out more about Tommy on his two Facebook pages, at Tommy I. Cayley Music and at Louisiana Songwriter Sessions. You can also hear more of his music on YouTube by searching Armadillo Ridge, all one word. Many thanks to both Hannah and Tommy for being a part of this season one finale. To find out more about me, my slow state-by-state journey around the country, to get in touch, or to figure out what the heck Burgoo is, head on over to my website, www.milestogobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles, the number two, gobeforeisleep.com. Find me on Facebook, on Twitter at miles to go tweet and on Instagram at miles to go before I sleep. All, of course, using the number two for me and you. You can also now find podcast-specific pages at American Anthology. Today's episode is going to wind up the first leg of this journey more great stories from Alabama, this time once again coming to you congested and from my mother's attic in my hometown of Washington, D.C., where I've parked my van to catch up on all of my projects, including this one. Since it's the season finale, how about you grab a glass of champagne or some sparkling cider if you're driving? 
Find yourself a comfortable seat, sit back, relax, and let me take you back to the battlefields, boxing rings, and ghost towns of the heart of Dixie. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Such is the fate of us all. Such was the fate of old Cahaba, Alabama's first state capital. When Alabama became a state in 1819, they decided to build a new capital city to vie with the largest towns in the country. The governor at the time, William Wyatt Bibb, wanted it to be a grand port city and chose an undeveloped plot of land at the confluence of the Alabama and Cahaba rivers. The land was surveyed and divided into lots, and construction began on the grand capital city of Cahaba. Land was sold for $1.25 an acre, but the price quickly jumped to $70. Just two years later, lots in the middle of town would cost $5,000. By 1821, over a thousand people lived in Cahaba, and the state government was meeting in a beautiful two-story brick capitol building with a grand copper-plated dome. Things were going well for the new town, but then their luck started to change. In 1821, it was yellow fever, and in 1822, the rains were so heavy that the rivers swelled right to the edge of the town. 1825 was a year of highs and lows in Cahaba. On the good side, they hosted the Marquis de Lafayette and had a grand celebration. On the downside, flooding was so bad in town that year that part of the state house collapsed. Grumbling started among the legislature. The town's biggest proponent, Governor Bibb, had died in 1821. And when he had, talk had turned to moving the capital elsewhere. The flooding and collapse at the State House helped call the question, and by a single vote in 1825, Alabama's capital was moved from Cahaba to Tuscaloosa. That wasn't the end of the old town, though, not by a long shot. It was still the county seat of Dallas County. The old state capital was used as the county courthouse at least until it collapsed completely in 1833. But then a new courthouse was built the following year. An increase of cotton production in the region pushed Cahaba to be the grand port city it was destined to become. Slowly but surely, the town was growing, as was its good fortune. In 1837, 
Richard Crocheron arrived to help run his family's store in town. He built a beautiful brick mansion with a view of both rivers from his front porch. Saltmarsh Hall was built in 1856 to provide a place for public gatherings and grand balls. And in 1858, Edward Perrine turned a cotton warehouse into a 26-room mansion at the foot of Vine Street, the largest mansion, in fact, in the state of Alabama. Vine Street, Cahaba's main road, was 80 feet wide, with brick sidewalks on both sides. The street was lined with stores, a law office, a theater, two newspapers, hotels, and a state bank. In 1858, when the Marion to Cahaba rail line was laid, the town really hit its peak. The population reached 6,000, and Dallas County became the wealthiest county in the state of Alabama and the fifth wealthiest in the whole country. I imagine it was quite a lively place. And then the Civil War came to Alabama. The men went off to fight, and the women were left to hold the town together. The war wasn't easy on Alabama or Cahaba. The newly laid railroad tracks were pulled up to finish the Demopolis to Selma line. One of the old cotton warehouses was converted to a military prison, often called Castle Morgan, and by war's end, some 3,000 Union soldiers were imprisoned there. In an interesting side note, after the Battle of Selma, Union General James Harrison Wilson and Confederate General Nathan Bedford Forrest sat down to a fine dinner together at the Crocheron Mansion to discuss a prisoner exchange. The following day, General Lee surrendered at Appomattox. Throughout the war, the flooding continued, and those that could leave Cahaba did leave Cahaba. Within a year of the war ending, the Dallas County seat was moved to Selma, and most of the white residents who were left in Cahaba moved with it. Many took their houses with them, and some still stand in Selma today. You can also see the copper-plated dome of the old Capitol building on top of the St. James Christian Methodist Church in Lounsboro. By 1870, fewer than 500 people lived in Cahaba, most former slaves freed by the 13th Amendment. They made what they could of the former capital. They built a school and used the old courthouse for public meetings and elections. But slowly, even they left Cahaba, and by 1880, it was a ghost town. In 1900, a man bought what was left of Cahaba for a mere $500 and began dismantling the buildings and selling them for scrap. Today, a mere 200 years since the first lots were sold, there was almost nothing left. A few old pillars from the Crocheron Mansion, an old fireplace where Castle Morgan once stood, a few wells, and, of course, the cemeteries are all that remain of Alabama's first state capital. The rest is gone, moved on, been repurposed, or been absorbed back into the wilderness from where it came, all but forgotten on the banks of the Cahaba River. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Thinking back on all of those years And I still wonder
I hate American history books. There, I said it. You heard me right. Any book, no matter how thick, which attempts to tell the history of this country is doomed to fail. And the chapter which usually bothers me the most is the one on the Civil War, because you can truly spend a lifetime studying the American Civil War and still have questions. Was the Civil War fought over slavery? Absolutely it was. Was it about states' rights? Yes, that too. How about taxation without representation? One of the battle cries of the Revolution, and the license plate slogan of my hometown of Washington, D.C. Yeah, it was about that too. In fact, the more you know about the war, the more you would probably agree that it was inevitable from the day the Constitution was ratified. The Civil War was many things, but it was not just black and white, blue and gray, north and south. It was far more complicated and nuanced. And as I drive down the highways and byways of America, my mind often tosses these things around as I try and sort them out in my own head. In fact, not long ago, I was pondering that very topic as I drove north on Alabama Route 195 through the tiny community of Double Springs in Winston County. I looked out my window and saw a fairly typical-looking Civil War memorial outside the county courthouse. But over the shoulder of the statue of a young soldier flew both the Union and Confederate flags. This would be an unusual sight no matter where in the country you are. But in deeply rural Alabama? I checked my mirrors and then slammed on the brakes and took the corner on two tires as I went in for a closer look. Winston County is in the northern hills of Alabama, where Appalachia begins. It's rocky land with poor soil, uneven terrain, and unpredictable weather. In the early 19th century, while Alabama was getting rich off of King Cotton, the citizens of Winston County were just trying to eke out an existence. By 1860, as Dallas County had become the richest county in the state, Winston County was the poorest, with a per capita property value of just $168. The census for that year shows 3,450 white people in Winston County and only 122 black people, most of them enslaved and owned by just 14 families. This was in sharp contrast to much of the rest of the state. When Alabama's secession convention was held, the county voted 515 to 128 to send 22-year-old schoolteacher and ardent unionist Christopher Sheets to represent them in Montgomery, which was, by then, the third state capital. Sheets spoke out against secession and voted against it when a vote was taken. The vote passed, but only by a 61 to 39 margin. Sheets refused to sign the secession ordinance and would eventually be expelled from the legislature and jailed for treason. After Alabama seceded, Winston County formed a home guard unit to protect itself from outsiders. On July 4, 1861, 2,500 people gathered at Looney's Tavern, just north of present-day Addison. This was an informal gathering and included people from surrounding counties as well. There was a lively debate, with Christopher Sheets being one of the most animated speakers. The gathering at Looney's Tavern produced three resolutions. 
The first was to commend Christopher Sheets for representing the county and their position so eloquently at the secession convention in Montgomery. The second vehemently denied Alabama's right to secede from the Union, but declared that if they did have that right, then Winston County should have the right to secede from Alabama. The third resolution declared that those present believed that the South had made a mistake in their secession. It went on to state that despite this, they would not take up arms against their fellow Southerners, nor, however, would they shoot at the flag of their fathers or grandfathers, many of whom had served in the Revolution and the War of 1812. In the end, they asked simply to be left alone by both sides, so that, quote, we may work out our own political and financial destiny here in these hills and mountains of North Alabama. One pro-secession attendee, Richard Payne, mockingly shouted, Winston County secedes! Hurrah for the free state of Winston! Confederate sympathizers in Winston County called for Governor John Shorter to suppress the Unionist activity there. Governor Shorter warned them that if they didn't send the requested number of volunteers, a draft would be ordered, and if that were to happen, Winston County would be among the first included. He further issued writs of arrest for anyone actively disloyal to the Confederacy. In April of 1862, the Confederate Conscription Act was passed, calling for every able-bodied man, 18 to 35, to report for duty, unless, of course, they could find someone to go in their stead. This exemption was later expanded to include anyone who owned more than 20 slaves. People in Winston County, like many others, began to realize it was a rich man's war, but a poor man's fight. They couldn't remain neutral, and they wouldn't fight. Many retreated into the hills, living off the land and hiding out near a secluded natural bridge. These men, often called mossbacks, couldn't work their farms, nor could they defend them. Confederate conscription agents would come and take what food and supplies their families had to feed the army, literally taking food from the mouths of their children. Many felt that this crossed the line and fled north, joining the Union Army and forming the 1st Alabama Cavalry. In July of that year, Union General Abel D. Strait rode with his men through the hills of northern Alabama, trying to recruit men to join his army. He even got Christopher Sheets to agree to fight, but Sheets was arrested soon thereafter and would remain in custody for much of the rest of the war. Those on both sides who remained in Winston County took their frustrations out on each other, robbing and even sometimes killing their former neighbors. The war would drag on for three more years, and by 1865, Winston County was in ruin. When the war finally ended, people from both sides came home and tried to pick up the pieces, but tensions would remain high for generations. During Reconstruction, Christopher Sheets would represent Alabama at the State Constitutional Convention and would go on to serve as the U.S. Consul to Denmark and for one term in Congress. Today, Winston County is back to its old quiet self, with a population of only about 24,000. Many are proud of their heritage and still talk about the free state of Winston and the meeting at Looney's Tavern. They'll be the first to remind you that the Civil War was not as cut and dried as the history books make it out to be.
Pence, the statue in front of their courthouse holding both flags. The plaque on that statue, titled Dual Destiny, reads as follows. The Civil War was not fought between the North and the South, but rather between the Union and the Confederacy. Perhaps as many as 300,000 Southerners served in the Union Army. The majority of the Appalachian South, from West Virginia to Winston County, was pro-Union. Winston provided 239 Union and 112 Confederate soldiers, 21 of whom shared last names. This Civil War soldier, one-half Union and one-half Confederate, symbolizes the war within a war and honors the Winstonians in both armies. Their shiny swords in 1861 were, by 1865, as broken as the men who bore them. And their uniforms of blue and gray, once fresh and clean, were now as worn and patched as the bodies and souls they contained. Johnny Reb and Billy Yank, disillusioned by the realities of war, shared dual destinies as pragmatic Americans in a reunited Union. That's a plaque that tells the real story of the Civil War and a monument that belongs right where it is, in the heart of the free state of Winston. Lucy sits out on her front porch. John Elisha rides away. Her boy was just 18. said he'd write her swore he'd be home soon and he said he'd make her proud of a southern boy sits out on her front porch with her girls in Reverend Green. They sip Confederate coffee she'd made from butter beans. They talk of times before the war. They talk of hard times too. And they talk John Elisha, her southern boy. flowers on the graves of Burl and Cousin Willie who both died in rebel grave and her husband Martin so faithful, strong and true then 
She walks down by the creekside and she prays for her southern boy in northern blue. Lucy sits out on her front porch, crumpled letter in her hand. those words a thousand times she'd never understand they said her boy had breathed his last way on down in Baton Rouge laid to rest with fellow soldiers her southern boy She goes up to the graveyard and places flowers on the graves. She takes a wreath down to the creek. It gently floats away. She sends her love up on the breeze on down to Baton Rouge. She weeps for John Elisha and she prays for her southern boy northern blue she sends her love up on the breeze on down to baton rouge she weeps for john elisha and she prays for southern boy in northern blue a hundred and twenty four seconds that's all it took a hundred and twenty four seconds Clark Gable was there that night J. Edgar Hoover was there, too. FDR was listening in on his radio, as was Adolf Hitler. A 14-year-old Jimmy Carter had his dad hook up a radio to their car battery so they could listen, too. In fact, perhaps one out of every 25 people alive on the planet in 1938 was huddled around a radio so they could tune in. It was broadcast live in English, German, Spanish, and Portuguese. And in the end, it only took 124 seconds for Joe, the Brown Bomber Lewis, to defeat Max Schmeling that night and become the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. Joseph Lewis Barrow was born May 13, 1914, in rural Chambers County, Alabama. He was a hefty 11-pound baby, the seventh of eight in his family. Sadly, Joe's father was committed to a mental institution when Joe was just a kid. 
His mother remarried, and his stepfather moved the family to Detroit when Joe was about 12, and they settled in the Black Bottom neighborhood. Interestingly, a few years later, Sugar Ray Robinson would move to the same block, but he was six years younger than Joe. Detroit was rough, and Joe's mom was worried he might fall in with the wrong crowd. She wanted Joe to take violin lessons, but Joe started to learn to box at the local rec center instead. To keep his mother happy, he toted his boxing gloves around in an empty violin case. When Joe was 17, he stepped into the ring for the first time. Perhaps still trying to keep this side of his life from his mother, he signed in only using his first and middle names, and would forever after be known as Joe Lewis. That first fight was a tough one. Joe squared up against Johnny Miller, who would go on to fight that summer at the Olympics in L.A. Miller beat the hell out of Joe, knocking him down seven times in the first two rounds before the fight was called. Joe learned a lot of lessons from that fight, some, I'm sure, he would never forget. He went on to win 50 of his next 52 fights as an amateur, 43 by knockout. With a record like that, Joe started attracting attention. He was approached by a man named John Roxborough, who wanted to manage the young fighter. Roxborough knew a Chicago-area boxing promoter named Julian Black, and the two would help propel Joe Lewis into the big time. Independence Day, 1934. Joe fought his first professional bout, knocking out his opponent in the first round. He made a whopping $59 for that fight. Joe went on to win all 12 fights he fought in that year. As he gained prominence, his managers did an incredible job of keeping his public image clean. In fact, they wrote up a strict set of rules for Joe to follow. They had him fight clean, told him not to gloat over fallen opponents, and made sure he never had his picture taken with a white woman. While boxing wasn't a segregated sport, who fought who was largely up to the promoters, so Joe had to keep a clean image. This all paid off in 1935, when Lewis finally got a shot at a top contender. On June 25th, he knocked out former heavyweight champ Primo Carnera in six rounds. By the end of that year, Joe Lewis was 27-0 as a professional boxer and was named the Associated Press's Athlete of the Year. He was just 21. The following summer, 1936, while his fellow Alabamian Jesse Owens was preparing to run into the history books at the Olympics in Berlin, Joe was scheduled to fight German boxer Max Schmeling for the first time. While Schmeling was a former heavyweight champion, he was 30 years old by then, and Lewis didn't see him as much of a threat. While Schmeling was training as hard as he ever had, Joe was taking it easy and practicing his golf swing. On June 19th, Schmeling shocked the boxing world by knocking out Joe Lewis in the 12th round and handing the young boxer his first defeat. This created a problem for boxing promoters who had wanted to see Lewis contend for the heavyweight championship against Jim Braddock. By all means, Schmeling should have gotten his shot at Braddock first, but as I mentioned earlier, it's the promoters who make the rules. 
In June of 1937, Lewis knocked out Braddock in an eighth-round victory and was crowned heavyweight champion of the world. But the kid just shook his head and said he wouldn't consider himself the champion unless he could beat Max Schmeling. That set the scene for the rematch at Yankee Stadium in 1938. 70,000 fans crammed into the ballpark, and the worldwide radio audience would reach over 70 million people. The bout would last only 124 seconds, and Schmeling would land only two punches. Lewis came out swinging and never let up. He knocked Schmeling down twice, and the third time he went down, the German strainers knew it was over and threw in the towel. It would be the first time in our nation's history that white America would embrace a black man as a national hero. Joe would defend his title 14 times over the next few years before enlisting in the Army a month after Pearl Harbor. Joe joined the cavalry and went to Fort Riley in Kansas. There, he used his celebrity to help get black recruits into officer candidate school. One young man he met in Kansas would go on to be a hero himself, a kid from Cairo, Georgia, named Jackie Robinson, who we talked about in episode 14 of this podcast. The Army felt Joe was better suited to help boost morale than to fight Nazis, despite his victory at Yankee Stadium. He would fight 96 exhibition matches during the course of the war in front of two million soldiers. For this, he would be given the Legion of Merit Award for, quote, incalculable contributions to the general morale. In 1943, Joe appeared as himself in a film called This is the Army. Also appearing in the film was a young actor named Ronald Reagan. Though not close, the two would consider each other friends for the rest of their lives. Joe also fought in charity fights to raise money for military relief funds back at home, raising a whopping $90,000. When asked by the media how he felt about doing all of these things when segregation was still going on at home, he replied, quote, Lots of things wrong with America. Hitler ain't gonna fix them. One of the things wrong with America was that the IRS counted the $90,000 he had raised for charity as taxable income and came after him for back taxes after the war. They even disallowed deductions he had tried to take for buying tickets for soldiers who couldn't afford to see his exhibition matches. This would put pressure on Joe to return to professional boxing. Now in his 30s, he would defend his title several more times before retiring in 1948. He had held the heavyweight championship title for 11 years and 10 months and defended it 25 times, both still records today. At that point in his professional boxing career, his only loss was to Max Schmeling. In 1950, the IRS told Joe Lewis he owed them half a million dollars. Seeing no other option, Joe came out of retirement and fought two more fights. He lost the first by decision. The second he fought on October 26, 1951, the day before my Uncle Blaine was born. At 37 years old, he went up against the great Rocky Marciano. In the eighth round, 28-year-old Rocky knocked Joe clear out of the ring, only the second time he was knocked out in his professional career. 
Joe retired for good after that. The next 30 years of his life were tough financially. He did a brief stint as a professional wrestler and even joined the circus for a while. Joe Lewis was a good person, though, and had made a lot of friends over the years. And when times got tough, it was his friends that got him through. An old army buddy of his, who was, at that time, working as a manager of Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas, got Joe a job as a host at the casino. Joe would greet people at the door, play golf with celebrity guests, and console high rollers when they lost. His friend made sure that housing was included with the job so that Joe could live in a nice place and the IRS couldn't touch it. Joe would work at the casino for the rest of his life. When Joe developed heart problems, his old pal Frank Sinatra made sure he got the best care, even flying Joe on his personal jet to Houston to see a renowned doctor. Perhaps the most interesting friendship Joe had was with his old nemesis, Max Schmeling. The two would meet often to share each other's company and laugh about the good old days. Max would be a pallbearer at Joe's funeral. Joe Lewis, the legendary Brown Bomber, died from a heart attack just outside Las Vegas on April 21, 1981. His old friend Ronald Reagan had gone on to great things, and as president, he quickly waived restrictions to allow Joe to be buried at Arlington Cemetery, just outside my hometown of Washington, D.C. After all, that's where heroes are buried. Reagan said of his old friend, quote, Joe Lewis was more than a sports legend. His career was an indictment of racial bigotry and a source of pride and inspiration to millions of white and black people around the world. All of America mourns his loss, and we convey our sympathy to his family and friends. But we also share their pride in his professional achievements, his service to his country, and his strength of heart and spirit. Montgomery, Alabama, 1955. A black woman boards a segregated bus and finds a seat somewhere in the middle. As the bus continues along its route, the white section fills with riders. When the section is full and a white lady gets on the bus, the driver tells the entire row of four black riders that they need to stand. Three comply, but this woman doesn't budge. The driver threatens to call the police, but she holds firm. The police arrive and arrest the woman, and what would come next would have far-reaching implications on the civil rights movement and American history. Have you heard this story before? You may be surprised 
that the story I just told was that of a 15-year-old high school student named Claudette Colvin, who refused to give up her seat a full nine months before Rosa Parks did the same thing. Claudette Colvin was born in September of 1939 and raised by her great-aunt and uncle in the King Hill neighborhood of Montgomery. She attended segregated Booker T. Washington High School, where she was a quiet, well-mannered student who brought home mostly A's in her classes. She was fascinated by black history and aspired to be president of the United States someday, but life would have other plans for Claudette Colvin. Claudette rode the bus to school and back every day because her parents didn't have a car and it was a long walk. March 2, 1955, was like most other days in her young life, until, all of a sudden, it wasn't. When the driver ordered those four black riders to move, it was not an unusual occurrence on city buses in Montgomery in 1955. As Claudette sat tight, another black woman, Ruth Hamilton, took the seat beside her. Ruth was pregnant, and when the driver ordered her up, she told him she didn't want to stand. Perhaps out of solidarity, perhaps out of stubbornness, perhaps with profound clarity and vision, Claudette stayed seated beside her. It didn't make much sense that the white woman couldn't sit in the two now empty seats opposite them. When the police arrived, they asked a man sitting behind them to give up his seat for pregnant Ruth. He did, but Claudette wasn't moving. Later, she eloquently remembered, quote, History kept me stuck in my seat. I felt the hand of Harriet Tubman pushing down on one shoulder and Sojourner Truth pushing down on the other. The police weren't interested in a negotiation with a teenager and forcibly removed Claudette from the bus. She screamed, stating over and over that they were violating her constitutional rights. Despite her young age, Claudette was taken to the adult jail, where the gravity of the situation caught up with her. She was later bailed out by her pastor and was able to return home to King Hill. Claudette was represented by Fred Gray, one of only two black lawyers in Montgomery at the time, and who would go on to try several major civil rights cases. She was convicted of disturbing the peace, violating segregation laws, and assaulting a police officer. On appeal, the first two charges were dropped, perhaps to keep the state's segregation laws from moving to higher courts. But the charge of assault was upheld, and Claudette was sentenced to probation. One of the people who helped raise money for Claudette's defense was the secretary of the local branch of the NAACP, Mrs. Rosa Parks. The two would become friends, and Claudette joined the organization's youth group. She sometimes spent the night at Rosa Parks' house after their weekly meetings, and the two would stay up late talking about the fight for civil rights. Local black leadership considered using Claudette Colvin's case to challenge the city's segregated bus system, taking their cues, as we heard in episode 18 of this podcast, from the successful bus boycott in Baton Rouge two years earlier. But Claudette wasn't the poster child they were looking for. 
She was just a kid after all, had dark skin, and came from a poor family and a poor neighborhood. Despite the injustice she endured, they would wait for what they considered to be a better opportunity. That opportunity, of course, came in December of that year, when Rosa Parks found herself in the exact same situation Claudette had been in. Having taken a seat in the middle of the bus, it wasn't until a white rider wanted her seat that she was faced with the same options. And while she stated many times that she didn't board the bus that day with the intention of defying the segregation laws, it's hard to imagine that in the moment she wasn't thinking about her friend, Claudette Colvin. In contrast to Claudette, though, Rosa Parks was a married, 42-year-old, light-skinned, educated professional. The bus boycotts were announced the following day, and Rosa Parks was written into the history books as the mother of the civil rights movement. Interestingly, especially knowing what we know now, it wasn't Rosa Parks' case which would challenge the constitutionality of Montgomery's segregation laws. The case which did that, and eventually landed in the U.S. Supreme Court in my hometown of Washington, D.C., was called Browder versus Gale. The attorney who brought the case was Fred Gray, and one of the four plaintiffs, and the star witness, was none other than Claudette Colvin. The case would end segregation on Montgomery's buses. After the case, though, Claudette had trouble finding work in Montgomery, and in 1958, moved to New York City. She eventually found a job as a nurse's aide, a job she held until she retired in 2004. I would never want to take away from the legacy of Rosa Parks. Her work with the NAACP was far-reaching, but it bothers me when people talk about her as a little old lady who was just tired from working all day, instead of the fierce 42-year-old educated woman who had trained at the Highlander Folk School for Social Justice Leadership. And when the opportunity presented itself, she knew exactly what she was doing. She had learned that lesson from 15-year-old high schooler Claudette Colvin, who had somehow had the courage to stand up while still keeping her seat on the bus. Her dad went to pick her up when she was only in third grade. Put her in his truck and asked how was her day. She said they didn't want to play with me. That's it for the show this week and for season one of American Anthology. Thank you so much for listening. 
I hope to see you right back here for season two in just a couple of months. If you had a good time listening, please take a minute to rate and review the show. It really does just take a second, and it really does make a difference. And be sure you tell your friends about it. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking this journey with me. It wouldn't have been the same without you. How great is Hannah McFarland? It was wonderful to meet Hannah and see her perform at the People's Room in Mobile. I can't wait to hear her new album, which should be out soon. You can find Hannah online at hannahmcfarlandmusic.com, on Facebook at Hannah McFarland Music, and on Instagram at Hannah McFarland. Find and download all the songs you heard today on iTunes. And if you're ever in Mobile, be sure to stop by the People's Room for a show and tell Jim I sent you. He'll be thrilled you're there. I'm also sure you now understand why I wanted to include my friend Tommy Ike Haley's song A Southern Boy in Northern Blue in today's episode. Tommy is so amazingly talented, and I really wanted for y'all to hear this song. You can find Tommy on Facebook at Tommy Ike Haley Music or at Louisiana Songwriter Sessions. You can hear more of his wonderful music on YouTube by searching Armadillo Ridge. Thanks to Hannah and Tommy for making this final episode of the season so special. By now, I'm sure you already know where to find me. My website is www.milestogobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles2gobeforeisleep.com. Find me on Facebook, on Twitter at Miles2GoTweet, and on Instagram at Miles2GoBeforeIsleep. All, of course, using the number two for me and you and season two. You can also follow along as I promote season one over the next few months with podcast-specific pages at American Anthology. Thanks, as always, to Kevin McLeod at IncomTech.com for background music and to the great folks at FreeSFX.com. Our theme music comes from the legendary Memphis Slim. By the time you hear this, I've been home for a while, trying to recharge, repack, and catch up on some of these projects. I've started writing a book and done some planning for the next leg of this journey. In just a couple of days, I'm headed towards Mississippi, and then I'll be moving on through Texas and New Mexico. I truly hope we can reconvene for season two with stories from all of these places in just a couple of months. Until then, have fun out there, wherever you are. Get out and go somewhere new. And most importantly, be good to yourselves and each other. Thank you again for all your support this season. I am your host, Mike Harding, and this has been American Anthology. Until we meet again, keep your eyes on the road, your hands on the wheel, and your headlights pointed towards your next adventure. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every.